About a month ago when Pastor Bob asked me to preach in February, I began praying. I was led to Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. But before I read the passage, I want to provide some context. First, the letter to Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was one of his prison epistles as the letter was written while he was under house arrest in Rome. This house arrest allowed Paul time to slow down from his missionary journeys where he traveled well over 10,000 miles. On his second missionary journey, he traveled to Ephesus and planted a church there. During Paul's third missionary journey, he returned back to Ephesus. Why was Ephesus so important to Paul? In Acts 19, we learned that when Paul entered Ephesus, he started preaching and teaching, which was always his custom in every city that he entered. About 12 disciples, they heard him preach, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus. He then went to the synagogue, the Jewish temple in Ephesus, and he spoke boldly about the kingdom of God for several months. Several became hardened to God's word and disobedient, and as a result, he felt that it was best for him to withdraw from the synagogue, taking the disciples with him over to the school of Tyrannus, where he continued to preach and teach for two years, so that all who lived in the region heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All of a sudden, God's word that was boldly taught by Paul for over two years took root in many people's lives and hearts were changed in Ephesus, to where we learn that many of them started denying the existence of man-made idols. The Holy Spirit moved in people's hearts, and their lives were changed. Paul wanted to win the loss in Ephesus, and now this evangelism explosion took place, for God opened a wide, effective door for ministry after two years of faithful obedience to preaching the message of Christ. Paul saw both the opportunities and he quickly learned the obstacles. God had opened a great door for effective work and Paul wanted to seize the opportunities while they were still there. An ancient Roman proverb says, while we stop to think, we often miss our opportunity. Once we know what to do, we must do it and not delay. Now close to a decade later, and as I mentioned earlier, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians in Rome. Again, I want to stress, while he's under house arrest, listen for Paul's heart for this maturing congregation and for the church, the big C, capital church, all believers around the world as a whole. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prayed for the believers to have a deeper relationship with God. Then in chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 13, Paul explained that the believing Jews and Gentiles had become one new person, the body of Christ, positionally speaking, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This explanation is incredibly important because Paul is setting the stage that in his second prayer in Ephesians, which we're going to be looking at here shortly, that it's not just for the Christians in Ephesus, but it's for Christians all over the world, as he's referring to all Christians as one new person and the body 
of Christ. In his second prayer of Paul's in Ephesians, which we're going to be focused on examining this morning, Paul proceeds to pray that the church would be united experientially. He desired that they would experience the power of Christ's love in them and through them and in their love for one another. Please open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Ephesians chapter 3 as I read verses 14 through 21. And then open us in prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father God, as we begin to break down and study, Lord Jesus, Your words, I pray that You would open our hearts through Your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us individually and corporately as a church, as the church. Father God, of areas maybe in where in which we need to apply what we're hearing, maybe areas in which we need to be more intentional in our prayer life. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet each of us, all of us, right where we're at. And I pray, Father God, that we would receive your word with a desire to live out your word. Father God, speak and move in only the ways in which you can do. We ask this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. I've titled this morning's sermon, How to Pray for the Church. How many guys would agree that we need more prayer, more now than ever? Look around the world, watch the news. We need prayer more today now than we ever have. What can we learn from Paul's second prayer in Ephesians? I've listed three points for us to ponder, to reflect, and to think about. The first is, is what can we learn from Paul's prayer? The first point is, how to approach God in prayer for the church? In verse 14, we see humility. We see humility in his purpose. He uses the phrase, for this reason, which takes us back to the previous chapter. Paul just explained to his readers his reason as he wrote them in chapter 2 in the first half of chapter 3 leading up to this prayer. Listen to what Paul informs his readers are his reasons for his prayer. You see, Paul is led 
to prayer by the thought of the greatness of Christ, raising to life those who were dead to sin, the realization of the unity into which the Jew and the Gentile have been brought into the church together, united as one family, by the thought of God's purpose over his own life to preach the gospel to Gentiles and Jews alike. And because of the temptation of his readers to lose heart, because he was imprisoned. Notice the humility in his posture. He goes on, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Think about that, church. I bow my knees. Paul recognizes the presence of the one in whom he's in. I want you to think about that when we show up to worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We are in the presence of greatness of Christ. We are here to worship him. Paul doesn't take this lightly. He's on his knees as a sign of ultimate humility of the one who he knows who can answer all prayers. When we come in here and we sing songs, it's easy for us to get caught in the motions of just doing church. But as we sing lyric after lyric, word after word, are we reminded that we're worshiping our risen Lord and Savior, that we're worshiping God, that we are in His presence, does our posture show that? Notice the humility in verse 15 in his declaration. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. You see, he recognizes God as creator. He knows who he's bowing to, big God, little Paul. This is the one true God who has named, continues to name, and will keep continuing to name every family since he's the one creating them. This is a reminder that God is alive and he's active in the present time and he's going to continue to act. Today, God is alive. He is active in Ukraine. Right now, God is active. He is present. He is going to continue to act. Before we move on to point two in the text, I want to pause here for a moment as I want to draw one more important point here. Notice, Paul, he's not attacking the church for not approaching God in a certain way. He's simply being the shepherd that God has called him to be. Carrying the heart of a shepherd for his sheep. As he's bowing his knees as the leader in humility to his father, the one true God, and petitioning God on their behalf. As we move on, we're going to find out exactly what Paul is petitioning God for as we see Paul's wise in his prayer. From Paul's prayer, we learn point number two. Why approach God in prayer for the church? Paul's first why is he's petitioning God for his strengthening. That according to the riches of his glory 
The wealth of God's glory is the wealth of his essential being. It's who God is. Paul knows that God has unlimited resources. He's the creator of everything. He petitions God to provide the church with spiritual blessings on this lavish scale, and he knows that God can do it. When we show up to worship, are we reminded that we are worshiping a God who can, who will, who wants to? Are we reminded of this in our prayers, in our worship, that this is who we are here to serve? He goes on, he says, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul knows that God generously gives strength through the Holy Spirit, and this is the strength he knows that the church needs. It's not a self-equipping where I just muster up my own strength. He knows the strength that the church needs is the strength in which only God can provide from his Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of this in greater detail in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, where he says, so we do not lose heart. It's easy, church, for us to lose heart, isn't it? As we look at the world all around us, it's easy for us to lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul is referring to the believer's progressive sanctification, meaning that daily we are becoming more like Christ as we mature in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. Paul is petitioning God to do this work which only he can do in the life of every believer, through his power, through the Holy Spirit, well, we have to ask Paul, what will this produce? Let's see what he says next in verse 17. Paul's second why, first is strengthening, and his second why is for love. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is a continuation of his request in verse 16 in which Paul prays that the result of his strength is that Christ would be at home in their hearts as you trust in him which is literally through by faith in him. Christ will dwell or better worded he will make his home in your hearts. It's important that we comprehend what Paul is praying here. By praying for Christ to dwell in the believer's hearts through faith, Paul is expressing the result of the innermost strength, which is this deep indwelling of Christ in people's hearts by faith. Here you see the Trinity at work, the Father in verse 14, the Spirit in verse 16, and the Son in verse 17, actively involved in the spiritual growth of the believers of the church. Paul prayed to the Father for the believers to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit with the result that Christ would be deeply rooted in their lives through faith. Look at that next phrase, that you being rooted and grounded in love. This expression, it combines two metaphors, rooting from agriculture and grounding from architecture. Paul is using these two metaphors to express this same idea. The first one is agricultural, firmly rooted and the second one, architectural, firmly founded. The root and the foundation of love is God who chose believers. He predestined them. He graciously bestowed grace on us in Christ. He redeemed them, made them a heritage. He sealed them with the Holy Spirit. 
made them alive, raised and seated them in the heavenly realms, and placed them equally in one new person in the body of Christ. Can we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. As we passively received what you did for us through your son, nothing of which we deserved or earned. Verse 18, Paul's third why is for knowledge. It's this kind of grasping that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Let's review what we studied this far. In verse 16, Paul's request was for them to be strengthened in the inner person. And then in verse 17, with the result that Christ would be at home in their hearts. And then in verses 18 and 19, was for the purpose that they who had been rooted and grounded in love might be able to comprehend Christ's love. This applies to all of God's people. By using the four dimensions, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, Paul was praying that the believers might be able to comprehend the vast dimensions of Christ's love with the result that they might know experientially that love that surpasses knowledge. I love how theologian Frank Gabeline in the Expositor's Bible Commentary in Ephesians describes this. He says, Paul is simply telling us that the love of Christ exemplified in this magnanimity to the Gentiles is too large to be confined by any geometrical measurements. It's wide enough to reach the whole world and beyond. It's long enough to stretch from eternity to eternity. It's high enough to raise both Gentile and Jews to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's deep enough to rescue people from sin's degradation and even from the grip of Satan himself. The love of Christ is the love that he has for the church as a united body and for those who trust in him as individuals. Frank Thielman in his commentary in Ephesians says, Paul, he wants God to enable his readers to grasp the extent of God's love for them. That love that Paul himself had experienced, the encouragement of Christ's love during times of inner turbulence in his life. He wanted this same encouragement for his readers during their times of discouragement. You see, when they would take their eyes off of Christ and place them on the world and the things happening all around. Yet like the mystery, Paul knew that they could not understand this massive magnitude of Christ's love apart from God's revelation of it to them. This is the revelation for which Paul prays. In verse 19, we see Paul's fourth why is for fullness. He says in that phrase, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, to fully comprehend the sacrificial love of Christ is beyond the capability of any human being. His continued love for believers is equally incomprehensible. No matter how much knowledge believers have about Christ, his amazing love surpasses that knowledge. And the more we know of that love, the more we should praise him for it. The more we have received of that love, the more we should give it away. The more we should want others to have what we have. And we should pray for those who are missing it. Added bonus, Paul's petition is for believers to know the love of Christ. To know how he loved and how he loves and to experience his love and loving him in the way they love others for his sake. This love that Paul is referring to surpasses knowledge as it finds expression in experience. 
and sorrows and joys, in trials and sufferings, in ways too deep for the human mind to fathom or for human language to express. Church, look around the room at one another slowly. Imagine if you could peer into the hearts of each person you're looking around at. One of the greatest blessings we have when we gather is we get to share our experiences with Christ with others. There might be some in here right now who are going through some incredibly difficult trials. Maybe there's some others who have been through some incredibly difficult trials. And they need that hope that you have shared with them right now at this point in their life. When we fail to gather, we miss one of the purposes and the intentions of being the church. We're better together. Christ wants us to share our love and our experiences with one another so we can encourage and edify and lift each other up. That means it's not just about our core group of friends. The church as a whole. As a whole. To my family, my wife, Heather, my daughter, Hannah, my sons, Noah and Josiah, soon-to-be son-in-law, or soon-to-be son, I said that wrong, soon-to-be son, Harrison. This will always be my prayer for each of you. To the FECS teens and our youth ministry, Hannah and Haley and the others who've come back, the ones who are currently in the youth ministry, this is always going to be my prayer for you. It's always my heart for you. To our FECS church family, this is always my prayer for you. I pray more importantly than producing moral kids is that we produce young men and women who love Jesus more than anything else in this world. When I do everything I do, I get it. Sometimes kids mess up and they make mistakes, but that's not our focus. Our focus is that we produce kids who hunger and thirst for Christ, who've come to experience him in a way that he's their everything. Oh, church, sometimes we get so sidetracked on the wrong things. We look at morals and morality. Instead, we miss the point of sometimes there are symptoms that address a deeper heart issue. It's not if I just make them perfect on the outside. It's how can I work on them on the inside? What's driving their heart to cause them to want something more than Christ? And my prayer for my family, for my kids, my prayer for all the teens who come through this ministry for you as a church is that we would experience a depth in the love of Christ so much that we wouldn't want anything else in this world but him. That we would realize that he alone is enough. And I hate it, I hate it, I hate it that sometimes we have to go through extreme sorrows and trials to get us to that point where we fall on our knees. God will take us there. Sometimes that's what it takes. Christ is enough. When I look at you guys, my prayer is, is we want more of him and less of me. When I think about this experiential understanding of Christ's love, my mind thinks about how the leper felt 
when Jesus healed his hand. How the woman at the well felt, Jesus spoke to her. How Zacchaeus felt when Jesus came and dined at his table. How the woman with the alabaster jar felt when she used her hair to wipe his feet and poured an entire jar of perfume to anoint his feet. And Jesus recognized her. How blind Bartimaeus felt when Jesus gave him sight when everybody else just passed him by. How the centurion felt at the death of Jesus when he saw everything that took place and filled with awe proclaimed in Matthew 27, 54, truly this was the Son of God. I imagine Paul recounted his eyewitness account of Stephen as he was being stoned, falling to his knees as he cried out with a loud voice in Acts 7, 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Right before he died. I imagine when Paul recounted his own personal testimony on the road to Damascus when the Lord met him there through a bright light from heaven that shone all around him when Jesus called out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had come to experience the love of Christ. He had seen it firsthand in others' lives that they had this deep indwelling love of Christ and he wanted the church, not just in Ephesus, but the church to grab hold of this love. So much that we wanted others to have it too. As believers in Christ, we should be on our knees petitioning God. Every single one of us should be doing this more than we are. Our Father, for this experiential strengthening that only He can give, love that only He can give, and the knowledge for all the church. I've always heard it said, it's hard to hate someone that you're praying for often. Maybe I should repeat that. It's hard to... Hate someone that you're praying for often. It's hard to hate someone that you're praying for often. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Mere knowledge of Christ's love, it's not the end. Rather, it brings into a final purpose. Namely, that we might be filled up towards all the fullness of God. In John 13, 35, Jesus states, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus says it will prove that you are my disciples. At the heart of loving God and others is dying to self. And none of us dies to self without a lifelong struggle. Genuine love must be worked out with people. It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. John Stott explains it this way, God's fullness or perfection, it becomes the standard or level up to which we pray to be filled. The aspiration is the same in principle as that implied by the commands to be holy as God is holy and to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The idea of fullness implies total dominance or control so that God perfectly controls our minds, our emotions, and our will. Are you grasping the heart behind Paul's prayer for the church? Are you grasping Paul's heart for believers in his prayer? Do I need to remind you that he's in prison? Not once have I heard in his prayer any petitioning for his conditions to change. Hadn't heard it. 
had heard any focus on himself. His entire prayer is centered on the church maturing in her experiential strengthening, knowledge, love, and fullness of God so much that it spills over into everyone they encounter. How does, how does Jesus wrap up, or how does Paul, how does Paul wrap up this prayer in the first half of his letter to the Ephesians? He does what we should all do when we close our prayers. He brings praise right back to God. He takes us right back to praise to God. And the most beautiful doxology probably written. Point three is in Paul's prayer, we learn the importance of praising God in prayer for the church. He says, now to him, now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Paul ended his prayer with his doxology, which provides a very fitting conclusion to his prayer. You see, before Paul offers praise back to God, he accurately portrays who God is. That is, he's the one who is able. God is able to do infinitely beyond all we might ask or think. Once again, I love how Gabling breaks this down as he states that God's capacity to meet his people's spiritual needs far exceeds anything they can either request in prayer or conceive by way of anticipation. It's actualized through his power, which continually operates within the lives of believers. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary in Ephesians, said, It's impossible to ask God for too much. His capacity for giving far exceeds his people's capacity for asking or even imagining. This past Wednesday, we've been going through the entire book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter in the youth ministry, and as we're nearing the end of it, I wanted to show in our movie night for our evangelism night, The Insanity of God. Some of you guys have seen that movie, some of you haven't. Maybe it'd be a great idea if you guys watch it as a family. It's a beautiful movie. And he has a quote in there, and I'm reminded of this quote. He says, don't you ever believe that there's a free church and a suffering church? There's just the church. There's just the church. This is why we need to be petitioning God for believers in Ukraine, for believers in Russia, for believers who are experiencing persecution all around the world. You see, what they're having to go and do in hiding in secret places, we have the freedom to be doing every single day. Think about that for a moment. God can do far more exceedingly abundantly, all that we could think, ask, or imagine. And we have the freedom to petition God anytime we want. It's the heart of God. He loves orphans, widows, the homeless, those who are persecuted, those with disabilities, Addicts of all kinds. He loves all of them. Rather than gossip about them, how often do we petition God for them? Isaiah cried out, here I am, Lord, send me. A few years ago, we committed to five-year partnership with some Roma Gypsy in Romania, Camera Sue, Romania. 
partnered with the International Missionary Board missionary, Daniel Bird, who's been there for close to 20 years, working with the Roma gypsies. One of the pastors that he works alongside is a guy named Pastor Ruben. Uh, several of us have had the opportunity, those who've gone on two of our mission trips to Romania, my boys included, have had the opportunity to dine at Ruben's table with his entire family as they provided a meal for our entire group. My heart breaks for him right now. Check out this video and you hear from him as I asked him just to share briefly kind of where he's at. Many blessings and greetings from Romania. We are very sad for the war who just started yesterday, yesterday morning in Ukraine because of Russia's invasion. Ukraine is just next to us and authorities are telling us there is nothing to be afraid for. But we know if things will get worse, the very next country affected will be my country and Romania will be the battlefield between Russia and NATO. Now things are good in Romania and life is normal, but we don't know for how long time. Right now, many troops from USA and NATO are ready to defend Romania's borders. The government is asking men to be ready anytime to enlist in the army. Many ammunitions and weapons from Europe and USA are getting to our army. At the borders with Ukraine, thousands of refugees are coming to Romania and Poland as well. So I believe there is a real danger for us. Most we are fearing for our wives and children. I have a two and a half year boy and my wife in a month or so is ready to bring in the world a new baby girl. In case of a war, we don't know what will gonna happen with our families and our lives. But as a Christians and Jesus followers, we put our trust, our lives and destinies and families in His almighty, powerful hands. Please pray for us, for anything will come, our faith to be straightened in His word, our courage not to be loose, to be able to help others, and Jesus' light in us to be more brighter. Thank you for love and interest in your brothers and sisters in Christ from Romania. Especially, Michael, thank you so much for being such amazing and faithful friend and brother in Christ. Thank you for your country, for your great partnership in uh, this context. May God bless you. We love you and we pray for you. Please pray for us as well. Tonight, I'm going to open the church up at 6 o'clock. If anyone wants to come and pray and join me, whether I'm here by myself or whether anybody else wants to come and join, I want to have intentional time with just prayer. Prayer for our brothers and sisters in Romania. Prayer for the Ukraine. Just prayer. And so if you want to join tonight, I, I pray you would come and just spend time on our knees in prayer, doing what we can do right now in this moment. And then asking God to show us what else he wants us to do next. Pastor Ruben's very dear to my heart. He's a very good friend. And Pastor Alex has a longer video that he and Daniel shared with me, which I'll share at a later time. But what they're going through breaks my heart. I look at my wife and children. I don't have that same fears that they have. He shared with me just this morning that they have radar planes flying over right now. They have battle planes flying over. He could hear them. Over 200,000 refugees are fleeing Ukraine. 
headed all over. Some things we don't have to worry about as we're grabbing our Starbucks or other drinks. Their life right now is different. So tonight, if you want to come and petition God with me, I'll be here, whoever comes. He goes on and he says, according to the power at work within us. And then in verse 21, he ends it, he says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul gives glory to God. He's praising God's great work of reconciling Jewish and Gentile believers. And our praise similarly must go to Christ Jesus, the person whom reconciliation was accomplished. It's his creation, the church into which believing Jews and Gentiles are united. The church cannot have come into existence without him. Paul's use of the terms generations and forever is important as he is indicating an apparent mixture of both time spent on earth and in eternity, saying all generations, meaning all human life, will give praise eternally. Therefore, God is to be glorified beginning with the present age, and he will be glorified into all eternity. This is why we gather every Sunday as believers in Christ, as the church. When we walk through those doors and when we're coming to gather, when we look forward to Sundays approaching, we do it so we can worship God. We have the freedom to worship God. It shouldn't be the last thing on our agenda to think about. We should prepare our hearts to be ready to worship God every single Sunday. We get to worship God, our Lord and our Savior. And we're designed to do it as family. F.F. Bruce states that the amen which follows the doxology would be the congregation's response as it was read in their hearing. It's through Christ, as Paul says in another letter, that his people utter the amen to the glory of God. With this loud amen, the first half of the letter of Ephesians is concluded. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as I conclude, he, he wrote, he said, Indeed, our chief defect as Christians is that we fail to realize Christ's love to us. He adds how important it is that we should meditate upon this love and contemplate it often. It is because we fail to do so that we tend to think at times that he has forgotten us or that he's left us. And John Stott sums it up, this passage, and he states the following. He says, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what, made, what motivated you to give up everything for Christ and the gospel? How could you endure all that you did for Christ and keep going? He says, I believe you would see tears well up in Paul's eyes as he would answer. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. Live there and you'll continue to grow into spiritual maturity. Church, as we live there together as family, we as a church will continue to grow in spiritual maturity. When you think about Paul's prayer to this maturing congregation, do you feel his love? Do you feel his love? I don't know how you respond to something like that. But I've asked the worship team to come and 
play the doxology song. And as they get ready to play the song, I'm going to ask whether you want to pray and bow at your knees at your seat or whether you want to stand and sing it aloud together as a congregation or whether you need to come to the altar. And if there's anything the Lord is laying on your heart that you just need simply uh, to pray to God for, I, I just ask you do whatever it is that God has placed on your heart for you to do. But I hope it sounds different when we sing it after what we just heard. Father God, forgive us. Oh Lord, forgive us for the many distractions that get in our way of remembering what we do every single Sunday. The privileges we take for granted, Father God, you we take for granted. Lord Jesus, forgive us. Help us, Father God, as we worship you, Father God, to always remember the love that you sent us through your Son who died on the cross because you love us that much. Strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit love. Father God, by your love, strengthen us to be deeply rooted and, and grounded in our faith, Father God, to grasp the knowledge and to comprehend that love. And Father God, to be filled to the fullness so much that we spill over into everybody we interact with. May that be our heart. May that be the heart of us individually. And may that be the heart of us as a church. Oh Lord, let us worship you now in response. Whatever that looks like for each person and for us as a whole, let us worship you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.